0: Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now we've come to the end of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series in which we celebrate and lament 1998 and 1999. Here is Arturo Andrade to set us up.
1: So, we have arrived To the end of the end. In the last episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, we detailed 1997, the epochal, riveting, final official year of the fourth Golden Age of Rock. For this special episode, though, we will attempt to place a neat and tidy ribbon on this incredible era by providing a postscript, an epilogue, if you will, that will chronicle the important events and music of the late 1990s, the end of the century, really, that, for better or for worse, signaled the death knell of rock music as a vital, mainstream, youth-culture unifying force that demanded its space in the pop-cultural zeitgeist. The dawn of digital music distribution is all the rage, and it portends the end of the record industry as we knew it. The effects of the 1996 Telecommunications Act start to enable a certain corporate radio conglomerate to own monopolies over radio stations throughout the U.S., leading to tightened radio playlists that reduce artists' exposure, eventually leading to the death of rock radio as we knew it. The ubiquity of, frankly... Terrible and dumbed-down subgenres like rap metal and new metal serve as a sharp contrast to the spirited, inspired, and inspiring rock innovations from the beginning of the decade and its ultimate legacy is the awful events that tarnished a music festival formerly known for peace, love, and community. It wasn't all doom and gloom, however. Some of the best and most influential bands of the decade managed to produce some of their best and most enduring albums. Individual artists who had great commercial and artistic success earlier in the decade would release legacy-enhancing records that would cement their reputations for all time. And eventually, as rock music began its slide to a niche genre status not that dissimilar to jazz, a handful of younger generation classic rock auteurs and their bands would put out albums that set the stage for the genre to continue holding some meaning for true believers in the next century. Awake is supposed to be a time for remorse and sadness, but it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, let's celebrate the end of the fourth golden age of rock for what it was and what it gave us, Especially all the timelessly brilliant music that continues to resonate throughout the years. Welcome to the aftermath of the fourth golden age of rock.
0: So, Arturo, um, here's something interesting to uh, to ask. Yeah. Was uh, this two-year period we're about to talk about in this episode, 1998 or 1999, was this the beginning of the end or the end of the end? Uh, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it could be either or.
1: I kind of see it, maybe guys, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic because there's some good music that came out in the noughties, the, the first decade of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think it's the beginning of the end. Uh, it really is in some ways, um, because there, there was some great music that came out in the noughties that I think would have been multi-platinum, massively huge in the 80s and 90s, you know, but because of the the, the radio climate, the corporate cultural radio climate and uh, within the record industry as well, that music never really caught on, you know, and we'll talk about yeah. one of those bands at the very end of this episode.
0: So yeah. otherwise, how you doing there, sir?
1: I'm good. I'm ready to put a nice ribbon and bow here on the fourth golden age of rock. Looking forward to it.
0: Yep, uh, from your uh, always uh, terrific perch there in Gwangju, South Korea. Uh, Is it 117 degrees there? By the way,
1: no, it isn't. It's not that bad, actually. It's uh, it's about what is it now? It's about eighty, eighty something now in in Fahrenheit.
0: Oh, oh, f- fuck you and your mother for that, because it's <laughs> like, uh, like the whole uh from basically from Houston, Dallas all the way east in this country and England. I mean, they have wildfires in England now. By the way, I know but,
1: I read about that,
0: which is just insane. Uh, you know, uh, you know, my wife just did a five day uh trip up to you know uh, north of da- or east of Dallas, ostensibly to get away from Houston, and wouldn't you know it, it was like uh, 105 degrees up there. <laughs> when it was only, you know, it was only 101 down here. So she kind of yeah. lost the lottery yeah. it, you know, stuff is crazy. But I will tell you this though. And here's for a segue in the parallel universe. There is no climate change. Yay. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 it is a world uh, that's only on fire in the sense of great art and great music and a culture and, uh, a, uh, media ownership, uh, situation that values the best of the best and puts it on stage. Uh, if, uh, if you two, uh, even you two can't, f- uh, fill a stadium in this world, uh, over, <laughs> over here, but, uh, if today's like best bands could fill the stadiums, uh, they would be stars on this side. And we are, the curators and the promoters of this here, uh, side of the space time continuum. And as always folks, we, uh, we, uh, each review a new or new ish, uh, record, uh, for you to check out and that we, uh, we definitely, uh, w- would recommend to you. And so with that said, Arturo, uh, who, and what are you, uh, uh enthusiastic about here in the parallel universe, uh, yes. this episode?
1: It is one of my, he's not a new artist. He's been around for a long time. His name is Kelly Stoltz and his new album, The Stylist. Uh, Kelly Stoltz is an indie rock veteran from the San Francisco area who's been around for a long time, putting out solo albums since as far back as 1999, go figure, and uh, producing records by a slew of bands and artists from the Bay Area, particularly the OCs, probably the, the band most of note, that he's been uh, associated with. Stoltz lives in a world where Pet Sounds and Smile-era Beach Boys mingle with 1970s Fleetwood Mac on one side of the room and Berlin-era David Bowie fraternizes with peak period Wilco (laughs) and all of it is submerged in a gauzy psychedelic haze in a parallel universe where rock music is still a pop cultural force Stoltz would be a Tom Waitsian cult figure, selling out theaters around the world. Uh, for the last nine years, Stoltz has been on a bit of a hot streak and producing the best music of his career. Uh, his latest album, *The Stylist*, continues that stretch. Recommended tracks: "We Grew So Far Apart" is delectable pop rock with an elastic bassline and an earworm riff, easily the best candidate for a single. In the Night updates the decadent mid-1970s sound of the likes of Steely Dan and Al Stewart with a swirling indie pop. Uh, Plants shows off uh, Stoltz's quirky side with a running monologue in song about the wondrous glory of plants set to a canvas of new-wavish art rock. And toward the end of the record, there's a track called Wings that amazes with its repetitive psychedelic fuzz riff. It's kraut rock groove and a surrealist time travel story that evokes the, the Kurt Vonnegut novel Slaughterhouse five. It is not a perfect record. There are a couple of patchy tracks, but overall it's a fine entry in Stoltz's burgeoning discography. Certainly one worth checking out. If you're into imaginative, consistently good indie pop rock, Chris.
0: Yeah. Uh, good record. Uh, Here's a name that uh Stultz, uh evoked for me in listening to this uh, Todd Rundgren,
1: yeah, uh, a little bit. I can see there, that
0: because there's a diversity of his talent, and there's this uh, he has the ability to go from being uh, a wise ass uh, to uh, profound, yeah, uh, and then back again from right. song to song, and so it's right. just he's, he's kind of a uh I don't know he's like one of these guys that has the talent to kind of live outside of the realm of time
2: yeah, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> yeah. you have
0: to kind of like uh, be a wizard, which is why I could see him like he can work uh as uh the boardsman for uh the o c s and yeah. then do do songs as as fun and as quirky and as and and also as orthodox as these yeah you know, in in some respects and yes uh, also a a very uh a very competent progenitor of the fuzz. You know, uh, very much uh, so. The fuzz. not yeah. the fuzz. Duh fuzz. He's, so.
1: he's also toured with a bunch of big name people. He opened for er- Jack White a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he also uh, toured with Echo and the Bunnymen as one of their guitarists.
0: Hey, by the way, it's funny that you uh, you mentioned Echo and the Bunnymen because it kind of serves as an, a neat little segue into the artist uh, that I'll be talking about here. Uh, one thing I've learned over the course of the last uh, year and a half. So I'm going to, well, I'll do a couple of things here. I'll give one truism I've learned. And then a little bit of a, of a lament slash, uh, complaint, uh, one edict that I have leaned on in the course of preparing my parallel universe, uh, segments and doing, and kind of covering the waterfront, uh, when in doubt, look at Australia. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know, chances are, uh, what, what is it might be like 45% of the world's most interesting and best bands hail from Australia right yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy. You know, when you think of the number of, of good bands and good artists that are coming out of that country slash continent, uh, these days. And so, uh, the lament coincidentally. So, okay. So the, uh, the band I'll be covering this week is this young band, uh, with a really, uh, fun, But in a way, kind of nice commentary name, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever. But here's my complaint. This is a pretty good record. 2022, 2022 has basically been the year of the pretty good record. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's been a real pain in the neck uh, preparing for these segments and doing the research and keeping current. And finding something that I want to talk about on the air here in this podcast, because, you know, I want to root for something really enthusiastically. I don't want to tell you, yeah, this is pretty good. And, you know, they're they're working and it's interesting and, you know, you should check it out. And so it's like tempered enthusiasm. And uh, it just it's a repeat offensive uh, thing for this year. I mean, what? There's two great records. That I can think of, which are "Big Thief," uh, that record, and the Spoon record, and there are two very good records, very good records by uh, Kurt Vile and Wilco. Past that, it, everything else is either uh, pretty good, mediocre, or lousy. Uh, at least in terms of the parallel universe. Uh, kind of funny. The best album I've heard all year from anybody is "Push a Tease." It's almost dry. Uh, which he ain't eligible for the Parallel Universe, folks, uh, rest (laughs) assured. Uh, So I just wondering your thought on that. This this, this idea of uh, there's just there's a lot of homage and a lot of inspiration that these folks take, but the music just isn't all that inspired.
1: Yeah, generally speaking, I do agree with you. Um, you really have to look hard to find the great <coughs> albums, and and I have this problem with a lot of younger. I mean, I'm going to sound like a you know the know it all old man here, but I'm forty, I'm almost forty seven years old. So are you, Chris? And when we talk music with younger music fans, and they say something like, "Man, this album or this artist is so original and innovative. I never heard anything like that." And I listen to the same thing, and I say. No, I heard something 20 years ago that this thing is ripping off. <laughs> you yeah. know? I mean, I, I'm, and I know it sounds like the arrogant know-it-all old man, but I've just heard more music than you have. What you think is original and innovative, you only think that because you haven't heard enough music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, 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 had, you haven't heard enough, you know? And, and there's, a, there's good music out there. There really is. There's some good stuff out there. And, but I do agree that the only album that approaches greatness that has come out this year that i've heard is uh the big thief record um dragon new moon new moon mountain i believe in you um and i, I the misterines debut album comes close to me
0: yeah, that's pretty even, good
1: but yeah. even even then like there there's a precedent it sounds like something else that we've heard before everything yeah. that's good sounds like something else we've heard before and there are very few bands and artists out there who are kind of, who, who, who are transcending that. A lot of them aren't. Uh, few yeah. of them are. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, you're right. Like Spoon sounds like Spoon. Kurt Vile sounds like Kurt Vile. Uh, everybody else sounds like someone else. Although Big Thief, yeah, I, I'll admit uh, Miss Lanker does uh, have her, right. uh, you know, pronounced originality. Sure. Uh, so for what it's worth, by the way, Arturo, never, never apologize uh, for being a curmudgeon on a podcast called the curmudgeon rock report.
1: That is, you caught me there. Yes.
0: (laughs) That's, that's the whole point. Uh, we're, we're supposed to be the Statler and Waldorf of the rock nerd podcast world. So so come on, man. We're, we, you know, know, uh, we're trying to teach 22 year olds and we're also trying to mock 22 year olds. So, so, so just never, never change, bro. Never change. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's get back to uh, uh, this band, Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever, and their newest record, uh, which is called Endless Rooms. Now, uh, as is want to happen, I talked to Arturo. I, I shared with him that I was going to be talking about this record from this band. And uh, he says uh, uh, what he uh, says a lot to me in the terms of our tastes or whatever. Oh, uh, this, this album sucks. You should actually check out the first EP and talk <laughs> about that. Okay. Well, you know, I'm kind of like baby, nobody puts me in a corner or tells me what to do, but, uh, kind of an interesting, it was a good point. So I went out and I checked uh, out that, that EP and I disagree with you. I actually think that this record is better than that in the sense that it is more mature and the lyrics are a little uh, less uh, sophomoric. Um, but it, that's a marginal thing, which I'll get into right now. So we talk about Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, there, if you lived in London or in Athens, Georgia in 1985, uh, you heard variations of the same thing, <laughs> which was, uh, jangly guitars, uh, driven by beats per minute that, uh, Sounded like they couldn't wait to get to the next minute. So sort of, you know, up-tempo, uh, jangly uh, with uh, with echoing detached vocals and uh, occasionally something actually resembling a real melody. In other, uh, in
1: other, in other words, early REM.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and echoing and the bunny man and psychedelic furs and, and whatever. And then, well, you know, actually, you know, whoever else was, was kind of there. Yes. Uh, and so what you'll hear on these records is a young band that is a big fan of that aesthetic and they do it really, really well. Uh, really uh, uh, part lovely, part powerful jangly uh, lead guitar lines. So, so there's some really good playing. There's some really good architecture and structure and arrangement. Uh, you know, like I said, fat fast beat, Uh, It has that it has that effect of the sort of the echoey uh, detached production where even the stuff that's in the front of the mix doesn't sound like it's all that much in front of the mix. Mm -hmm. It's all kind of like pushed behind. Uh, So it, it, it has that sound. But I recommend this band because, again, while the influence is obvious, they're actually pretty good. And I think they do put a lot of thought into what they're doing. Uh, and, uh, they, I think they work really, really hard to, uh, build a consistent sound. Uh, the best argument for this is that the fact that, uh, this band is essentially, they're a five piece. I believe they're led by three dudes, uh, three friends that grew up together. And so they all share in the writing duties. And here's the, um, the weird part about this. All three of them sound exactly the same in the sense that they're like those, those non singer singers that couldn't find a hook if they got shot with one in the ass. Uh, No shit. Yeah. Uh, And so that's my, that's one complaint is that the the vocals are just kind of, but, uh, and they write lyrics very, very similarly and in a very same style with a very uh, similar uh, perspective and use of the same sort of poetic metaphors. Uh, and, uh, the songs and the the hooks that they come up with are, uh, very, very inspired by one another. And so when I first heard this album, Endless Rooms, I thought it was like one dude. And I was like, wow, you know, this is a guy who's having an existential crisis. Who's, uh, comparing himself to, you know, the ice that shatters actually the best song of the album is called the way it shatters, which kind of, uh, kind of puts his, uh, emotional conundrum and, and compares it to, uh, the ice that breaks off the wing of an airplane. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, the name is the endless rooms at it's title, uh, track, the title song that it's based on is just a, this idea of, you know, we're just this sort of, we just, we're like ether going through the room and the room never stops and we just never, you know, we're, it, it's all connected and we're just dissolving into the universe. And it's, um, you know, and they... Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, Pitchfork, of all things, has now uh, become a go-to source. Their writing has gotten so much better uh, than it used to be. So I'm actually going to quote a line from their review of Endless Rooms that I think is hits the nail on the head beautifully and is also pretty funny. Uh, quote, uh, The effect of this band and the music... Is like one of those periodic R.E.M. songs where the bassist sings lead, except Michael Stipe does not return after it's over. It's just always a different guy who's not Michael Stipe up next. <laughs>
1: <And> <laughs>
0: yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so basically think of an album like, f- just fully spiked to the gills with Mike Mills songs. And right. I think and then you, you get a sense of what this record becomes after a while. Same thing with the EP. Uh, the EP has probably their two or three best songs on it in the sense that they are the ones that have something that resembles a uh, real, true, orthodox, lovely melody.
2: Yes. Uh, that's why it's close. That's why it's better. It's yeah. Right better. The,
0: <laughs> yeah the, the last two songs on the EP particularly. And yeah, it, you know, exactly. So, uh, you know, there's been, there's been some growth, uh, but it's been marginal growth in, in the sense of maturity, uh. But I still think they're worth checking out because for this kind of thing, they are very, very good at it. And I can see them having a bright future and getting better and better and better. Let's see where they are in five more years. I bet you they'll be doing uh, records that actually get more than just, quote unquote, pretty good acclaim. Arturo, your thoughts? Reason number one why this sucks. As this band has gotten
1: older, they've gotten more and more derivative. And like I said, they become more imitative of their influences. Their influences, basically any 1980s UK indie jangle pop band, sprinkle sprinkle with a little bit of R.E.M., as you said. Guess what? Heard it. <laughs> We've all heard that before. Okay. So what was unique and special about that first EP and that first LP has been lost in their last couple of records. They've gone way too derivative. That's number one. Number two... Where the fuck are the melodies? Where are the hooks? If you're going to do this kind of music, it had better be hooky. It had better be catchy. It had better be melodic. R.E.M. never forgot that, okay? The Smiths never forgot that, okay? Oh, if you can do this kind of music, it has to be earwormy, all right? We're not talking about, you know, a Trent Reznor a uh, 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 soundscape shit here. Okay, we're talking about hooky melodic pop songs, right? So that's another reason why it sucks. Because as, as and the third reason, like I said earlier, it's monotonous and same sounding. They the three songwriters all sound like each other now. It's now a unified front. I don't think that's a good thing. I like diversity. I like eclecticism within a songwriting group. Hey, go to the Beatles. The the three songwriting Beatles all had their own songwriting voices, okay? Um, Any other band where where you had uh, multiple members writing songs, like R.E.M., they all had their own songwriting voices. You knew this is a Mike Mills song. Oh, this is a Peter Buck song. Oh, this this is a Bill Berry song. It's punchy. It has hooks. You know what I mean? That's what I'm talking about.
0: So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy-bendy, yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens back in 2000 and commits it to quote-unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston, and Arturo lives in South Korea, so we are a worldwide affair, which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. And we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music wheel of its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to Lost and Forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they, they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming.
1: All right, folks. So now we are in the late 1990s, 1998, 99. The fourth golden age of rock is over. It is finished. Radiohead put an end to that with their OK Computer Masterpiece album. However, a lot of things happened at the end of this decade that kind of set the scene for what music would become in the next century. A lot of things, actually. And some good music, too. But first, let's start with one of those things that was really important, and that is the burgeoning and the whole notion of digital music distribution and how it changed everything Chris tell us about Napster
0: yeah that that I uh, that deserved a uh, a very drawn out everything <laughs> because it because it did um, so we're gonna we're gonna focus on Napster uh, specifically because uh, I think that chapter really encompasses this I look back on this and Uh, Two things uh, that were spread and promoted by the internet, uh, there were two concepts and two things about the internet that really did change the world. And that's democratization of information and decentralization. And because, you know, thanks to the web and related tools, you know, instant access to anything, uh, whether it be a platform for political speech or media or a sale uh, was possible you know, back when the uh, internet uh, first hit the street in the mid '90s, uh, it was a personal experience, really. You know, fan sites, message boards, et etc., etc., etc. You did have a few people out there that uh, thought bigger and saw bigger. You know, your Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk uh, types, and they saw w- they saw the internet. They didn't see you know porn uh, and uh, you know like Pearl Jam fan sites like I did. Uh, right. th- they saw like a distribution channel for anything on mm. a massive, like uh, rapid fire scale. And so, you know, they saw what we now know as our world, shopping without stores, banking without banks, uh, money without cash uh, and relevant to this discussion, you know, books without paper, movies without theaters and uh, music without tapes or discs. Uh, those guys were ahead of their time. In 1999, there was a 19 year old kid in uh, Boston was a student at Northeastern University named Sean Fanning, who was also ahead of his time, uh, whether he intended to be or not. Uh, You know, you just get the sense that he was just sort of experimenting with something because peer-to-peer on college uh, campuses at that time was becoming a thing for academics and scientists to share their research. You know, and so this idea of, oh, I'll, I'll transmit this thing so you can take a look at it. And I think Fanning was playing with the idea of, well, why can't we do that with music? And so, uh, you know, so there, uh, there you go. And so Napster was one of the first of these systems to uh, play with this notion of what if we could upload MP3s of music to this platform and somebody could access the same platform and download a copy of that file. Uh, he, I don't think Napster was the first one of these. However, thanks to a magic of, ironically enough, the internet, uh, the buzz was strong and it caught fire. And now, uh, file sharing and internet music was a uh, huge thing. But Napster, what from what I remember, there was an ease of use to it. It was very simple, uh, and uh, you know, had actually, you know. A, a legit search engine uh, to it. Um, and remember the concept of Napster, it, it, it did not store anything. It was not a library. It was just a conduit, which yeah. was their, their argument. You know, you can't, <clears throat> you can't misappropriate copyrights if you don't actually have anything to do with it. You know, right? it's the old argument that, you know, we can't police what, what people do with this thing, which of course is bullshit. But, uh, so, you know, there you go. So, Basically, Napster uh, was akin to uh, giving the girl you adored a Memorex me- uh, mixtape. You know, yeah. I, I think of that scene from Boogie Nights, you know, awesome mixtape number two. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and those types of things. And so it also, you know, it had its legitimate purposes if you think about it. And it, it basically it was the equivalent of uh, tape trading, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like you used to be able to go to a store and buy a tape in there, or, you know, you'd go to a, you know, deadheads, you know, oh, here's my tape. Oh, there's your tape of shows. Well, now Mm -hmm. you could do that with here. Now, what mostly happened as a lot of folks our age and a little bit younger will remember, instead of all those legitimate uses, quote unquote, legitimate uses that I just listed off, what mostly Napster was used for, uh, what you saw was young adults who loved and craved music uh, using the Napster system to upload electronic files that captured and condensed the music they were buying from stores on one end, and to download copies of those electronic files onto their computers on the other end. It was like tuning into a radio station that played exactly what you wanted to hear at exactly the time you wanted to hear it. Undoubtedly, though, for business people and attorneys like me and for writers and journalists and uh for the artists themselves, uh, basically, it was like selling knockoffs and just outright stealing. Yeah. Uh, unlike that Memorex example uh, that I just provided, uh, which was really a swap between one friend and one other friend, uh, this was like sending that same tape to a pool of up to 80 million people. Mm. Uh, yeah. At the height of its powers, Napster uh, had 80 million people that were using that system to, uh, to share uh, files. Uh, through it. Uh, In other words, in the first year plus of Napster's existence, uh, the user experience was akin uh, to a store that you could get away with looting as many times as you wanted. Uh, Now, you could say that there was a righteous uh, reason for this or a righteous justification uh, for this. Uh, by the summer of 1999, uh, many, I would say most CDs, at least at the Tower Records or a place like that, were on sale for 18.99. Way too much. Like I said, the, the record industry
1: kind of invited this upon themselves with their price gouging.
0: Yeah, you no, know, absolutely, and 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 so there was that, and exactly, there was the commoditization of music, and the commodities were now like becoming less and less affordable, and that eighteen ninety nine price really held whether you had seventy nine minutes and fifty nine seconds of music, which was the max you could put on a CD, or thirty one minutes uh, which was the length. I remember the Weezer's, the green album comes to mind, but you would have like these EPs, you know, jar of flies Mm, from a a few years before, which is what, like 32 minutes and you're still paying the same, the same price. Right. And that really, that really sucked. And so why be a sheep to that shit when you could just sit down at a PC and get the same music for free? Um, Uh you know, so, you know, fuck the labels. Now, uh, I'm sure that when many veteran artists and record executives hear the Sesame Street combo of M, P, and 3, they still cringe. Yeah. Uh, And they still get pissed, which reminds us of how they got pissed enough back then to start suing. (laughs) Uh, This, of course, is where Metallica uh, comes in. Uh, Their uh, original uh, consternation was triggered by someone leaking a demo of, uh, something they were working on a studio, you know, tape of a demo hmm. and it got out there. And then they did enough, um, they did more research and they realized that people were just wholesale, just, Hey, you never heard master of puppets come up here and grab it. Uh, right. and so they were no longer in control of their own commerce and, which is ironic because you got to remember, they were kind of like the uh, the greatest man of the people band of all time, you know, the, right. the greatest grassroots success, non-jam band division of all time. Yeah. Uh, and so now here they are saying, well, hey, now you're costing us millions of dollars. Now we're going to like hit you with the hammer. Hmm. And so that's really where it started. I know Dr. Gray filed suit against Napster. And within a few months after that, the Recording Industry Association of America, uh, or the RIAA for short, that's the trade associations uh, that represents the record labels. They came after Napster, uh, suing it for violations of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, mm. which is a federal law that had been enacted a couple of years before in anticipation of a, a scenario uh, much like this one. The idea, oh, the internet's coming, it's going to be the Wild West, let's get ready to you know, be in mm. the Wild West. Right. And so here we were. And really, you know, so Fanning and uh, Sean Parker and others that were involved in Napster, uh, once that started happening, they started getting the heat. They did start making efforts to police the uploading of copyrighted material. At one point, I saw a stat that you know that they were effective 99.4% of the time in getting folks to not upload uh, uh, their stuff. Uh, and this was also in a climate, you got to remember, where uh, the federal government was starting to prosecute. End users, yeah, you know, people who are uploading and and downloading this stuff on their their computer. Uh, w- one of the things that explains the rise of personal use of the VPN, by the way, right? Um, as you well know, Arthur. Yep. Uh, but uh, so so, despite these efforts to police those things, and not only that, but also to sell the virtues of their technology, you mm. know, as a one of these you know, again, it, it's a paradigm shifting mass distribution channel. And it had that potential. Despite all of that, the RIAA eventually got their injunction uh, against Napster in federal court, which effectively shut Napster down. And uh, the company went bankrupt uh, by uh, 2002. So now after all of that setup and, and history and rumination, now let's get to the most important point. Uh, the major record label executives uh, back then, they, they when they saw Napster, they saw sales killing leaks misappropriation, piracy and infringement uh, when they discovered the system and acted to battle those affronts. Meanwhile, they didn't quite have the foresight foresight to say, wait, easy, fast, reliable distribution and intense demand for music right here, right now. And And
1: that is what killed the record industry they just yes. they, did, they, they they just had no foresight they just they thought oh oh no our business model is perfect we don't want to fix that we're making all this money no 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 we got to continue
0: yeah exactly and you know in, in a lot of cases it starts out this way and in some businesses and especially this happens with medium like various media all the time today's crime could well be tomorrow's subscription driven on demand on-demand industry right you know and you know you an over-the-top world was, you know, uh, I talked to people in, you know, in my music business uh, journalism career, talk to folks that even back then that said, you know, once uh, wireless technology is sophisticated enough, it's going to change everything. That everybody's going to have movies in their pocket. Hey, mm-hmm. lo and behold, we live in a world where movies are in your pocket right now.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so when they they shut down, the, you know, here's the thing. When they shut down Napster, nothing changed because many, many, many different versions of the Napster concept and program popped up all over the place. And the people who wanted to steal the shit still stole the shit.
1: And, and, th- and, so, then, and then you have what we, and that eventually evolved into what we still have now, torrents, torrent downloading, which I still yes. do. <laughs>
0: yes, absolutely. And it took these assholes at the major label pretty much a decade to figure all of that out. And hey, as it turns out, it was a good way to save a whole bunch of money on royalty payouts. Uh, If you think about it, if they had worked with Napster back then uh, and Napster became their subscription service choice, maybe they could have worked in a way that was more artist friendly because maybe the expectation at that time is they're still paying out a whole bunch of money. You mm-hmm. know, the internet wasn't as mature enough. And so they hadn't yeah. figured out, you know, by 2010, when Spotify comes along, yeah, they could figure out that there was a way of more value for us, less value for the people making the content. Uh, yeah. so, so there was that. So to this day, as you alluded to, I still say the murder of Napster was the single dumbest thing ever done by any industry in America Maybe except for the horse and buggy industry back in like 1905. You know, <laughs> I mean, come on. If you were a horse and if you were a horse and buggy manufacturer in 1906 and didn't see the future, yeah. that was a bad move. And this is basically the same thing. So yeah. uh, here's a syllogism for you. Or, or you know, I'm I'm a licensed attorney, so I love my logic. Futurists create new ways of doing things. Corporate executives, attorneys, and accountants do not. Therefore, corporate executives are not futurists. Yeah. Yeah, there you go, right? Yeah, sure. And now, two decades out, we're left scrounging around on Spotify and Bandcamp and in other places for the really good rock and roll and hip hop that once was available in the local stores and the chain stores and on television and on radio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And relying on TikTok to give us something great by happy accident. And we're left with a business driven as much by video as by music. And only by a handful of artists at a time. Arturo, uh, your thoughts uh, here?
1: Yeah, the point about the whole record label industry not having the foresight—I mean, they—they—they they, they, they really dropped the ball. You know, they—they—they they, they could have hopped on this in the late '90s, and it, it, we might have a totally different record industry climate right now had they done so. But they didn't. But hey, you know, Nat, well. As a segue to the next topic, Napster is the reason is the is the reason I got into Modest Mouse back in 1999 and okay. 2000. And Modest Mouse is one of the great American bands of this era. So before we go into another big issue topic, let's pause a little bit and reflect on some of the great albums that came out uh, in this 1998 99 era that are really overlooked. Uh, It's what I would like to call the original Parallel Universe. There you go. As our thousands and thousands of loyal listeners know, we start every episode with a segment called The Parallel Universe, where we put a spotlight on new music, particularly in the genre of rock with the premise that in a parallel universe where rock music is still a major pop cultural genre and still part of the cultural zeitgeist, these artists' bands would be on the radio or the pop charts. Or, for more modern parlance, they would have streams on YouTube and Spotify that would be up there with the Taylor Swifts and the Billie Eilishes of the world. Well, if we could retrograde this parallel universe of ours, its starting point would be the late 1990s. Why? Chris will talk about that in the next segment. But right right now, we'll just talk about the music. And it starts in the late 1990s, right when the fourth golden age of rock came to an end. And right when quality rock music started going back to under-the-radar status. And frankly, it's gone even further and deeper into that status as the years have gone on. But anyway, in a parallel universe where rock never lost its cultural cachet, the following three albums from the late 90s would have elevated these bands to arena rock status and would have sold millions of copies. Mm. We'll end this segment with also a brief roll call of several other brilliant albums of this era. But let's delve into the big three, or what we call the big three uh, 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 of the original Parallel Universe, the the three albums that indoctrinated (laughs) the Parallel (laughs) Universe in the curmudgeon rock report. The first album, one of this podcast's dear favorite bands, Built to Spill and their 1999 album, Keep It Like a Secret. Now, one of this podcast's favorite bands released their second masterpiece in six years when singer-guitarist Doug Marsh and his Boise, Idaho collective unleashed this beast to the world in early 99. Their previous album and first on Warner Brothers, Perfect From Now On, confounded the label and some of the band's core fans with its dense, swirling psychedelia by way of prog rock with this album though marsh and company blew their patented neil young meets pavement smothered in jane's addiction sound up to stadium sized proportions while showing off some of the best songwriting and most fantastic guitar work of doug marsh's career time trap is a slow building unfolding expansive leviathan of a track that merges the best aspects of psychedelia and progressive rock and explodes into a cascade of mind-blowing chord changes and rhythmic passages. Carry the Zero incorporates some very Johnny Marr-esque chord progressions. For those of you who don't know, Marr was the guitarist in the Smiths into a galloping wall of multi-layered guitar sound that sounds like Jane's Addiction stretching the Smiths to their sonic limit. Uh, sidewalk is quite possibly the purest and most perfect example of marsh's penchant for idiosyncratic elliptical guitar lines that weave in and out to create a tapestry all powered by one of marsh's most buoyant power pop songs ever and then there's you were right an epic worthy of lighter flicking (laughs) arena rock glory with lyrics that cleverly quote the choruses to songs by pink floyd Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Bob Seger, Kansas, and in the chorus itself, Bob Marley. Um, the record industry is guilty of many crimes, as we just talked about, but one of its biggest crimes is keep it like a secret, not being a commercial success and not getting the recognition of all-time great status that it so greatly deserves. Chris.
0: Yeah, that is puzzling. Uh, if anybody asked me for an honest answer of my al- if they said, "What are your three favorite albums of all time?" Yeah, uh, the honest answer would be the Beatles, uh, nineteen sixty seven to nineteen seventy, uh, Neil Young's decade, and "Keep It Like a Secret" uh, by it Built to Spill. Uh, Here is the formula: it's prog rock done as pop songs. Yeah. So you know, you take the 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 math of prog rock. And the emotion and sincerity and, uh, accessibility of classic rock or, uh, I don't know, indie pop or, you know, like you said, the kind of stuff that was, you know, basically just sort of sweet sentimental pop music, but done as in a very proggy, you know, muso sophisticated uh, way. And, uh, I mean, that just, just blows me away. Ironically, like you, you just mentioned, you were right the least proggy song on the record is the best. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it's four, four waltz time and uh, incredibly, incredibly poignant song. I think it's probably the best song they ever did. Uh, just the idea of you could hear that song either as a, uh, an appro- like you said, a clever appro- use of those choruses and classic rock references to uh, lament a breakup or it's a breakup song or it's a um, it's a song that essentially uh, marks a breakup with uh, classic rock itself. <laughs> you know, the idea yeah. of of the idea of, you know, you were uh, you were wrong when you said everything was going to be all right. And then here's <laughs> the supporting evidence. And how and <laughs> yes. how, how dare you rock break my heart? So now I, <laughs> I need to break up with you. And so uh, I it, 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 in one way, I just mo- it really is just moving one way or another. And there's a, it's a moving record, I think, altogether, together. Uh, it's just, it's an exciting record. Uh, it rocks. Uh, it's got lovely melodies. And again, it's like math plus soul. And it's the best example of that I know of. Uh, it, uh, I think of all the albums that we're going to talk about, especially the ones from 1999, it may actually be the most enduring. Yeah. Uh, Certainly more enduring than a couple of the the albums that we're going to dedicate whole segments to uh, later on.
1: (laughs) Right. This album probably did deserve its own segment, but hey, maybe Built a Spill will get its own episode on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Who knows? Stay tuned. Anyway, Anyway, so the next should have been blockbuster album of this era, Neutral Milk Hotel in the aeroplane over the sea. This album came out in early 1998. By the end of the year, it had sold 50,000 copies. While not a large number for a major record label standards, that's a hell of a lot for tiny indie label Merge Records. Nevertheless, simple record sales do not even come close to explaining the ever-growing cult and legacy. Talk about enduring. This album endures. um, That this album has fostered among both multiple generations of fans and multiple generations of critics. Uh, Music publications such as Paste, Pitchfork, Q, Spin, Blender, and Slant have all rated it quite highly in their lists of best albums of the 90s. I think Pitchfork had it at number four. Um, Mm -hmm. Hell, even Rolling Stone had it at number 376 in their most recent 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list from two years ago. Now, why has this album endured as an all-time classic and as arguably one of the five greatest American indie rock albums of all time? Well, in a previous episode of this podcast, we covered Neutral Milk Hotel's debut album from 1996 on Avery Island in our Vault segment. That album had a thick lo-fi, fuzzed-out guitar sound heavily indebted to Guided by Voices. It also shared uh, GBV's penchant for pop and psychedelia powered by punk and garage rock rhythms. Jeff Mangum, Neutral Milk Hotel's main guy, though, was a much more soulful singer than Robert Pollard and a deeper, more profound lyricist. Pollard dealt and still kind of does deal (laughs) with abstractions, but Mangum injected his abstractions with an emotional power that even if you don't exactly know what he's talking about, you can feel what he's talking about. In other words, the true sign of a poet. Mangum took that lyrical approach to a new level on In the Aeroplane Over the Sea by loosely basing the narrative on the story of Anne Frank, a pretty audacious idea if you think about it, and using that as a springboard into a surrealist fantasia with striking, evocative, symbolic lyrics that deal with family dysfunction and sexual identity. Uh, Musically, Mangum's lyrical canvas is given heft and power by being framed by a more stripped-down acoustic musical backing. For the most part, acoustic guitars abound in the mix, but the music is peppered with exotic arrangements, such as an accordion, a singing saw, Ewellian pipes, a zanzatophone, I, th- I believe that's how it's called, <laughs> a, a, a ho- and a horn section consisting of a trumpet, a trombone, a saxophone, and a flugelhorn. Imagine lo-fi folk rock accompanied by a marching band on acid. And that's <laughs> basically what Neutral Milk Hotel sounds like on this album. And yes, it sounds great. Uh, As album openers go, there are few in the history of rock music as breathtaking as the sweet King of Carrot Flowers parts one and two, which begins with a heroic, almost sing-along pub anthem, moves into a tension-building movement buoyed by that offbeat horn section, then launches into a full-on hardcore punk thrash with Mangum declaring uh, he will spit until he learns how to speak. The widescreen, majestic beauty of uh, Brian Wilson's Pet Sounds era is distilled into the glorious, offbeat, swirling, psychedelic sea shanty that is the title track uh, in The Aeroplane Over the Sea. Uh, The bouncy, fuzzed-out rock bliss of Holland in 1945 belies a complex cornucopia of rich lyrical imagery that flat-out rises to the bar that Bob Dylan set so long ago. The dark, eerie, shimmering communist daughter haunts with its disturbing imagery of semen staining the mountaintops. By the time the album ends with the folk lament for unattainable love that is Two-Headed Boy Part 2, you're left with an emotional punch to the gut and 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 sighing with a recognition that you've just heard an art rock opus of the highest order, one of the most singularly original and emotionally powerful records ever made and easily deserving on being on anyone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time.
0: Chris. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, best use of singing saw in rock and roll history, uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, it's th- this album, depending on the day and the time, uh, has been known to make me cry. Uh, yeah just the uh, the opening imagery of uh, that sort of that innocence under trauma of, right. ch- of children uh, and uh, some of the imagery of Holland 1945, of being able to see the earth down from uh, uh, the very beginning of outer space and some of that. So it's a very dreamy, uh, very hopeful record in some respects. And then it does remind you sometimes that, there's this, uh, odd sexual fascination with Anne Frank. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, And so it, it, once in a while it reminds you that, you know, that Jeff Mangum is not just like, you know, the equivalent of like a sweet nine-year-old boy handing you a flower. Uh, you know, there's something a little darker uh, going on there, but yeah, it deserves its cult status. We go
1: to the third great, should have been a blockbuster album of this era, Bell and Sebastian, The Boy with the Arab Strap. Now, their 1996 album, if you're feeling sinister, gets all the critical praise. But it's The Boy with the Arab Strap from 1998, where Bell and Sebastian best distill their intoxicating blend of 1960s folk rock, 1960s orchestral pop, and 1980s indie jangle pop into a finely honed blade. Of course, what puts it all over the top is the most beautiful, catchiest set of epic, sweeping songs that Stuart Murdoch and his Scottish mates have ever, to this day, still ever crafted. It's an album that casts a tall shadow over Bell and Sebastian's career, and it's one that, quite frankly, the band has never come close to matching. There's never been a more swayingly gorgeous, moving pop ballad serving as an ode to a record label executive <laughs> as, the, as the track Seymour Stein. Uh, sleep the Clock Around fades into a glorious take on mid-1980s Cure at their poppiest. Uh, the title track, uh, The Boy With The Arab Strap, has one of the most beautiful melodies ever conceived, one such that you'd think it always, it's always existed and grafts it to a perfect slice of 60s-style folk pop the likes of which folk pop practitioners from the vintage era never really approached. The breathtaking album finale, the roller coaster ride, glides along with a mid tempo yet slyly jaunty rhythm, glistening electric piano touches, and dancing slide guitar. While Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane Over the Sea overwhelms you with its sheer artistry and emotional wallop. Bell and Sebastian's The Boy with the Arab Strap overwhelms you with its sheer beauty, impeccable arrangements, and sweeping, spacious production. There aren't many albums from the indie rock sector, if any at all, that approach the pop perfection of Bell and Sebastian's finest hour.
0: Chris? Yeah, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, Pretty record uh, with uh, ultra-competent songwriting. And it's kind of funny, like this record for somebody, it's a fun record and it brings out the, um, the soft rock, uh, loving nerd in me. You know, like I, I grew up in a household that was big on Neil Diamond and Gordon Whitefoot and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and those kinds of folks. And so, you know, I have this sort of like, you know, uh, like AOR, MOR, uh, rock, uh, sensibilities. And so, uh, last episode, I, I said that Stuart Murdoch reminds me so much of Al Stewart, <laughs> uh, the singer of uh, Year uh, Year of the Cat, uh, who's also turned out in my research, it was Scottish. Uh, and the boy in the Arab uh, with the Arab strap, Jim Croce.
1: <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, I can bad, see that.
0: Bad, bad Leroy Brown. Uh, I yeah. mean, come on. It has that kind of like fun little clap your hand, little stomp to it. Uh, sure. b- beautiful song. And it has that, you know, like you said, it has that folk rock smiley energy to it but man you know like come on like Jim Croce and you know Don McLean and you know like like those folks I they really did kind of harken back to that but they did it one they did it better than those folks with better songwriting and it was ultimately it was prettier than all those folks you know it was that all that stuff was cool and gentle, but this was cool and gentle and pretty.
1: Yes, uh, we, we talked about the death of the music industry that Napster portended. Now we'll talk about the death of rock radio. Chris.
0: Yeah, I, I, I get all the fun stuff. And yeah, and you, you'll notice the theme that, you know, three things are officially a trend. Take these two on my next segment. It's a it's it's a trend. Uh, so. Now we're going to talk about the, uh, the dawn of uh, the monster now known as iHeartMedia, then known as Clear Channel, and the law that made it all possible. Uh, so this was a couple of episodes in this fourth Golden Age of Rock series. We uh, uh, paid tribute and uh, dedicated an entire segment in both 1995 and 96 to One Hit When Two Hit Wonders. Uh, wonderful time for these sort of uh, indelible, uh, you know, great lightning in a bottle songs that still actually get played a lot, but from artists that never were heard again. Well, that was back when, you know, there was less right now. There's more of a chance to get hit by a lightning than to get that sort of organic one hit wonder <laughs> status uh, because yeah. of the consolidation of radio ownership that was uh uh, brought to life or uh, accelerated by the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Uh, this was a federal law that was passed the first week of or enacted the first week of January of, of 96. This is one of uh, Bill Clinton's uh, triangulation, uh, third way, middle, kind uh, of you know, kind of uh, moderate uh, policy uh, uh, branch. He can be pro-people pro and pro-business. Uh, but it was all—it was all a sham. Essentially, what it was—it was a it, this bill was a corporate power grab, uh, disguised as a victory for competition, diversity, and decency. And uh, it really kind of reflected and sold what the Clintonites back then liked to call the information superhighway. Uh, the world was definitely changing in the mid '90s, and fiber optic cable, the internet, and the dawn of the wireless world. Promise, definitely did promise a more open world with more voices and perspectives to share and uh, presumably presumably, uh, more and more diverse outlets in order to do it. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if more folks could compete in a local market for media ownership and for there to be a climate in which you could get your cable, your internet, your radio, and whatever other media uh, via the same sources? Uh, that really was the, uh, what they were, uh, what they were selling. And so, no, actually that, that wasn't a, a wonderful thought. Uh, a lot of people, including me, uh, you know, as a junior, uh, in a mass communication school in, in Syracuse, and, uh, uh, we didn't buy that pie in the sky, bullshit, uh, it was smokescreen back then. And we kind of saw, it uh, for what it, it, it was, Uh, and one of the things that made it kind of a sellable to, you know, to mainstream media and to voters, let's put, it was a political bill. Uh, this is, you remember the V chip? Yes. 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 Uh, basically the idea and the technologies that allowed, um, that allowed parents to control what their kids could watch and hear, uh, was born from this bill. Uh, Another thing born from this bill, uh, the death of old TV in favor of digital TV. Uh, Everyone had to have a digital TV, I think by like 2005 or something like that, you know, and it, you know, it, it was, it it was crazy, but basically it just, it basically, it was, Hey, you know, we're, we're, we, we, we haven't updated the FCC's mandates and regulations and how we do this in 60 years. Oh, now we have this thing called the internet. Oh, this is an opportunity to get rich. And, uh, that, that really uh, is what it was. And so not, can't don't have time and nor do you want me to get into the technical and regulatory concepts and nuances of the bill. Uh, they would bore anyone who's not as wonkish as me. Uh, Cut through all that though. And the bill really did two headline things that proved uh, devastating and not really even long-term devastating. Like three years later, it was starting yeah. to state. So Short go, term. Yeah. Yeah. Here are the two things. First, it allowed the federal uh, communications commission, the FCC, uh, it allowed, it gave them the ability and uh, to uh, preempt uh, state rules and laws. And so if Congress passed a communications based uh, law, to be overseen by the FCC, uh, those, that, you know, those laws and that rulemaking ability could preempt state ability. So now, you know, now the ability to states to have their own uh, regulatory system and restrictions uh, could be overridden by the FCC, which as we know, I mean, uh, most of these government agencies are run by former executives of the companies that they regulate, you know, Fox media. Right. And US. right. Second, and more importantly for us, it loosened the restrictions on media ownership. So, I mean, this is, what these are the, the kind of the, the front burner examples. So say your favorite movie studio or phone service provider wanted to buy your local cable company. Uh, now, under the Act, uh, the Telecommunications Act of 96, they had free reign. Thus, say hello to Time Warner Cable, now known as Spectrum, and Verizon Fios. Uh, This also allowed for merger clusterfucks like AOL, Time Warner and NBC Universal and the ever, you know, eventually somebody's going to buy Netflix. You just know that. So you're going to get these, you're going to get these things. And so a trivial note is that uh, there's a regulatory scheme in this bill for every type of media. I don't think they foresaw uh, that the streaming would become the new cable. And so internet streamers are subject to different regulatory schemes than cable companies and like uh, online radio subject to different rules than real radio. Okay, I say that uh, because th- that kind of described the general deregulation gifts of the bill. Then there were these specific sweeteners. Uh, one of the, uh, the many myths exploited by lobbyists and members of Congress when they were, you know, getting this thing passed was that more potential owners meant more media entities. Uh, Competition was sold as a function of volume rather than dominance. Thus, and again, so we get section 202B of the bill. Uh, Specifically, uh, this eliminated a cap on local radio station ownership. Uh, You know, so that, uh, before this, uh, a company could not own more than four radio stations in the biggest markets. Uh, this up that scheme, and so uh, by this is what's enumerated in the bill. So if you were
1: basically this allowed for monopoly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes, it did. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's the short version. And so you know, it has tiers. At the highest tier, if you are in a market that has more than forty-five uh, radio stations, uh, you are allowed to own up to eight. I think that's been transcended since, uh, uh, which we'll get into in a bit. And so the idea is that, um, uh, so that uh, the assumption, I guess, again, that with more competitors would somehow equal more stations. Nope. And that's how the evil empire of Clear Channel really uh, got its spark. Uh, The company, now known as iHeartMedia, took the opening that 202B gave it and aggressively gobbled up station after station over the course of uh, several years and then several more years and then several more years. Uh, And this being a large corporation, that in turn meant consolidated, centralized oversight of station management and programming. Uh, Here, I'll just put in in as an ironic aside, iHeartMedia, which it's now known as, started out as an internet radio streaming services uh, service that had as its clients radio stations who paid to use it so that listeners could stream their stations online. So yeah, the big internet company bought the big radio station owner and rebranded it. Thank you again to that Telecommunications Act of 1996. Anyway, back to uh, the main road. Let's talk about what, again, what all of this caused. And this idea of that you've have that consolidated uh, centralized oversight yeah. that that trumps the uh, the control of those programmers. So without the cool ass local music directors and program directors taking a chance on a smells like Teen Spirit, which I think legend has it first got played on like a station in Minneapolis and then kind of spread its seed from there. And in other instances, you know, there's several times in rock history where some. Uh, Program manager or program director or DJ checked out the B-side to a single. And then the B-side became the classic because it's like, oh, shoot, I'll put that on a radio and it catches like wildfire. So uh, we don't get a lot without that freedom, without that independence. We don't get a lot of the classic music and beloved hit songs or even whole genres. Example, hip hop uh without uh without independence at those radio stations and that kind of uh, uh kind of uh spirit of the revolution in some of those like you know, hip hop was a singles business you know and so a lot of folks that like Rob bass and easy DJ Easy Rock, uh it takes two. Never did anything again, never got anything else on the radio. That song is indelibly one of my favorite rap songs of all time. If it wasn't for a more independent radio world, mm. doesn't today never happens, never even close to happening. And again, it took independence and freedom to build that spirit of the radio. Wink, wink. Uh, As again, so now this media ownership is consolidating and uh, the data driven bean counting is becoming more sacred. Uh, That independence and freedom were mostly replaced by edicts and decrees over what to play and what needed to go on at what times and so there, now you had gatekeepers that weren't really good tastemakers, you know, right. bean counters, not tastemakers. So if a rock band didn't now in this world, if it didn't have a whole shit ton of backing, uh, radio was no longer a viable dream maker. And even when a band did have backing, that still didn't afford them uh, faith or patience. If a song wasn't producing listenership immediately, then its ability to become a one-hit kind was choked off. Even worse, when the same company now owns the big country station in town and the big top 40 station in town and the big urban contemporary station and the biggest Christian contemporary station and the biggest rock station in town, uh, now that company has the ability to treat their assets in that local radio market like a stock portfolio. If a stock underperforms, you get rid of it and buy more of what's producing the most value. So, yeah, if the alt rock station had a narrower, less excitable audience than a top forty station, according to the market research, there was a good chance it may just become a top forty station itself, or again, a, or a con- Christian contemporary station. Uh, that actually did happen in uh, several big markets. I think that the uh, Howard Sta- uh, Howard Stern's old uh, home station in New York city, I think went top 40, uh, yeah. and, or actually might've gone, I think it went conservative talk radio or something, it went something crazy. It was like something you never would have expected it to become, uh, in New York. And so, uh, you know, there, uh, there went that, uh, so yep. Less independence, fewer stations and one corporate board presiding over it now 855 uh, radio stations alone in this country, including nine, yes, nine, in fucking Fort Myers, Florida. Not exactly a a huge media market. They own nine stations in Fort Myers. They also own eight stations in Connecticut. Connecticut is like the size of like a piece of lint. And so they own eight stations in that. So ultimately, video didn't kill the radio star. Radio killed the radio star. (laughs)
1: Yeah, here's my, I mean, the old radio station format, pre-clear channel monopoly of radio station, radio programmers having independence and freedom to make their playlists and push what they want. That resulted in a gazillion record sales for the record industry. Many bands became millionaires off of it. Record labels uh, made immense profits off that. Why didn't the record industry... Fight this a little more, a little harder.
0: I don't know. I mean, it's well. Essentially, they were all making money. You know. Now, granted, I mean, the uh, the the major labels—they always had smart tastemakers like Clive Davis and Herb Albert. You know, who, you know, these were like the greatest talent scouts ever. And so they, you know, they were on a a par with you know the the program directors in terms of their tastemaking skills. But, uh, yeah, uh, radio DJs and radio programs have a whole lot to do with how some of this stuff exploded. Now, what happens is uh, you don't have as much independence. You don't have as many voices, and you just also don't have the time and the space to do what you used to be able to do as far as, again, organically creating those one-hit wonders. Ironically, and this is the amazing thing. So this happens to radio, where it becomes this tight game, where all these, you know, like what six or seven companies basically own all the radio stations in the country now. Right. Uh, what you see though is that the biggest phenomenons in music in America, uh, oftentimes in the last five years, where do they where do they generate?
1: American Idol.
0: <laughs> no, you, YouTube and TikTok.
1: Oh yeah, true. So, yeah. so
0: <laughs> social media accomplishes yeah. basically at times. The same darn thing that radio did for years and years and years. One of our main sources as we research this episode and this entire Fourth Golden Age of Rock series, really, was author Mark Yarm's fascinating 2011 book, Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge. As the book's title suggests, Yarm, in his role as chronicler and interviewer, puts all of what actually happened up there in Seattle during this magnificently strange national outbreak of their musical scene into the mouths and souls of the people who lived it or were associated with it. This includes folks like Sub Pop co-founder Bruce Pavitt, Screaming Trees drummer Barrett Martin, Bikini Kill's Kathleen Hanna, and many, 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 many more. We strongly recommend this essential volume Buy Everybody Loves Our Town and Oral History of Grunge today at a local bookstore or record store.
1: Five years elapsed between Nine Inch Nails' classic breakthrough album, The Downward Spiral, and their mammoth opus of a double album, The Fragile from 1999. There's a reason for this. Nine Inch Nails' main man, Trent Reznor, developed a serious drug and alcohol addiction in the half-decade between records, and all the misery, depression, and (laughs) angst that go with it went into the production and crafting of this leviathan of an album. Lyrically, The Downward Spiral was about one man's emotional, physical, and psychological breakdown into small pieces. The Fragile is about that man trying to pick up the pieces regroup build himself back up and failing at it (laughs) Hmm. musically while the downward spiral was mostly a full-on industrial techno rock assault fragile is full of ambient instrumental soundscapes more multi-tracked and multi-layered guitars and an overall oppressive in a good way heaviness that also manages to be spacious and with subtle hints of modern classical music and even jazz in its texturing. The funky bass line of We're In This Together, the album's best single, drives an emotionally charged epic that pours one guitar riff on top of another until it reaches its logical catharsis. Uh, Lemaire uses the piano motif of Claude Debussy's classical composition as the focal point of a lovely, moody instrumental. The creeping lurch of Into the Void brings out one of those funk bass lines again and slowly unspools into a sonic storm, very much like the spiritual successor to the classic Nine Inch Nails uh, single, Closer, from five years earlier. The way out is through evokes 1970s King Crimson with its slow-building vortex of electronic and guitar textures before it climaxes with its pulverizing finale of a heaviosity. I just made that word up. <laughs> there you uh, go. Uh, even though alternative rock and commercially was commercially waning at the time of its release, uh, Trent Reznor uh, proved with The Fragile that he was still at the top of his game by not only producing his final masterpiece, but also an album that has aged like fine wine throughout the years and endures as one of those classic albums that provided a fitting stamp to the end of the decade. Chris.
0: Yeah. uh, This, uh, the fragile was the number one uh, on the uh, top 10 lists that I either published or submitted that year. That was my number one uh, record. Um, It's an easier record to admire Than it is to enjoy. Right. Uh, And incredibly well made. I mean, it is a towering monument to the power of studio uh, technique and engineering and arrangement. Uh, Reznor and uh, his uh, production collaborators, one of which was Flood, uh, just a genius um, level of sophistication. And I mean, this is a hard rock, quasi metal record. But again, it has that deliberate uh, composition to it, uh, and you know, like you said, uh, the Starfuckers Incorporated actually uh, has a lot of that too. It's it you know it's it's like the most sophisticated, uh, most fun, uh, mo- most swinging song called Starfuckers Incorporated imaginable.
1: All right, now we segue from that into I did it all for the Nookie, the Nookie. Yeah. So you can take that cookie yeah. and stick it up, yo. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's Arturo's impression of Fred Durst, which is actually better than the impression of Fred Durst that Fred Durst did, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah. So now we go from, uh, ultimate sophistication to ultimate crudeness, crassness, and ugliness. Uh, 1998, 1999, it was the, was, 1999 were the finest hour. Uh, and more not so finest hour for new metal or as I used to like to call it mook rock. Yeah. Uh, so uh, man, it's just like take like rage against the machine faith, no more and Pantera and all that musical influence. And now like, like put in like a, like a high school dropout meth head uh, in the driver's seat. that's pretty much what uh, happened here. At new metal uh, so Social Distortion, uh, the great punk band, uh, fronted by uh, Mike Ness, they had a wonderful album title uh, from uh, that, an album they released in 1997. Uh, one of my faves, White Light, White Heat, White Trash.
2: <laughs> now, uh,
0: while Social D uh, meant that as a satirical take on the Velvet Underground uh, uh, album title, Uh, There were other artists who hit the big time here in the late 90s that took that slogan. uh, It took basically took that album title and used it as a slogan to live by and rock by. New Metal was music to piss off the people who thought they had all the rock and roll secrets to pissing off your parents. So it wasn't designed to piss off parents. It was designed to piss off everybody, you know, everybody that thought they knew what good rock was. Uh, The worldview was ugly and crude and crass and pained and profane and definitely deeply misogynistic and homophobic. And here's why I think rock critics and college kids mostly hated new metal and this stuff. You really kind of had to live the poverty and the abuse and the uh, neglect and messed up self-esteem to get it. I didn't live it, so I never really got it. And, you know, I still think uh, that the music mostly sucks. Uh, but I can at least appreciate what these new metal artists, uh, meant to their fans. Uh, that kind of, uh, again, working in lower class populism, uh, propelled corn, uh, Limp Biscuit, uh, the Deftones, Slipknot, uh, POD, Kid and Rock. Most, most curiously Kid Rock, the superstardom. And I say curiously with Kid Rock, here's why. Uh, Kid Rock started out as a, an orthodox rapper, uh, promoted by Jive Records, uh, same label, uh, as, uh, A Tribe Called Quest, uh, you know, one of the preeminent early uh, hip hop uh, labels. Uh, Yes, he was uh, white and he was from a farm north of of Detroit, Michigan, and he never pretended otherwise. But rap, the New York minimalist drum machine driven kind, was his genre. But it turned out that Kid Rock was way more talented and had way more to express and way different ways to express it uh, than the trendy sound that brought him to the dance. And so, yes, I I am praising Kid Rock here. So after years of lousy sales, he found himself with new freedom to try something different. In other words, to swing for the fences. And 1998's Devil Without a Cause, it's still hip hop, but it's a kind that's amped up by a real backing, uh, banging uh, uh, rock band. It's influenced by Bob Seger and Hank Williams Jr. of all people. And yes, it gave white trash everywhere something to call their own. Uh, it's an album that I personally think is the epitome of lightning in a bottle and a work of real, uh, real genius. I mean, it, it, it to me, it, it really is. I mean, a lot of people are like turned off by Kit Rock now because he's basically turned himself in cynically into a country singer and a uh, uh, believer in all things that Donald Trump stands for basically. Uh, but this was, this was a great record and this one was the good one. And, it's only in the bucket with the other two because of sales and, uh, sort of media promotion. The other two corns follow the leader and Limp Biscuit's significant other are almost entirely terrible and insulting <laughs> and yeah. really just insulting save for, uh, freak on a leash by corn and break stuff by Limp Biscuit. uh, for what it's worth. Both of those bands proved that, uh, there was a thing in the late nineties of really talented uh, guitarists being stuck in really shitty bands. No uh, shit. The dude from Limp Biscuit was a really good guitar player. Uh, so was, so was head uh, from Corn. Uh, anyway. So, you know, they, they basically got stuck. So, you know, while, you know, basically, you know, those roots were most, the bands, those two bands, uh, Limp Biscuit and Corn their roots were most certainly uh, uh, born from dark and mean streets. But by this point, They were bringing out the ugliness and the violence to the poshest of parties in L.A. And they were also glamorizing dangerous, shitty behavior in general, but especially dangerous and shitty behavior towards women. Uh, The sound of rebellion is one thing. That's cool. Dangerous, shitty behavior is entirely another. Uh, How these guys embraced that kind of behavior and sold it was and still is repugnant. Which brings us to Woodstock 99. Uh, Okay. Uh, Something I don't necessarily like to remember and talk about, but let me just uh, give a little bit of personal reflection on Woodstock 99. Uh, You know, I guess we talked about the Omiclain earlier. If there was such a thing as the day the music died, uh, this was the day that like decency in rock and roll and like decency in the concert industry died as we and, knew and, it.
1: And let me point this out for everyone listening. Chris was actually working there as a member of Sonic net reporting on Woodstock. So yeah. And that's there. what I was
0: getting to. This is my connection to it. Yes. I was there. This was July 22nd to July 25th of 1999 in Rome, New York. And now let me, let me talk about it a little bit. Yes. I was there. There was a team of us from SonicNet, which had just been bought by MTV, uh, by the way, uh, to go up there to cover this damn thing. It was legitimately like 99 degrees the entire time. This was held on a decommissioned Air Force base. I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Rome is about 35 miles, 40 miles to the east. Griffiths Air Force Base was one of the area's most what largest and most important employers, Uh, you know, basically a lot of everything around Syracuse, like to the east and north of Syracuse is basically Trump country. Why? Because there were military bases there uh, that I think there were two of them, one north and one east that got shut down in the early nineties. This was one of them. And so now this was something Michael Lang and uh, John Shearer, Uh, the promoters, Lang obviously did the original Woodstock and John Shearer was his promotion partner. They're looking for a home for this thing. And so somebody up there in uh, county government in uh, Rome's County had the genius idea of saying, hey, we've got this big slab of concrete and we have a depressed economy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we brought Woodstock up here and made all this money, and every everybody was right, and we'd, we'd always be associated with peace, love, and music uh, forever and ever and ever. Okay, well, Michael Lang, you know, they struck enough of a deal, uh, and so they promoted this thing. Didn't tell anybody publicly that uh, Griffiths was a Superfund site, uh, which meant that uh, it was a toxic waste dump underneath, And Superfund meant that there was federal money uh, that was designed to clean up all the toxic waste. And so, yes, it was essentially, this was a big concrete slab in 99 degree weather that was on top of toxic waste. Okay, so that's one thing. And so going up there, I was really excited. Hey, you know, shit, Woodstock, you know, basically not only in, uh, uh, you know, down the road from my hometown, but also the town directly next door to the city in which I began my journalism career, Utica. And so this was exciting for me until I fucking got there. Uh, (laughs) So again, it was 99 degrees, which when you're on a big concrete slab means it was about 120 degrees on the ground. Uh, Griffiths was designed to basically safely hold about 75,000 people there were by some counts up to 400,000 people at this thing uh, who all paid a bunch of money to go up there. I don't think that they, they weren't ready for that kind of heat and for that kind of rush of people. Uh, it was just disorganized. And so these geniuses, because it was just, it was a pure cynical money grab for everybody. They, uh, They had no potable water anywhere on the site and the bottles of water were being sold for $4 each, which, you know, these days we expect that back then that was a shitload. You know, that was, that was gouging. So there was that. And so, you know, the food was high priced. There's all this. So now you're in a hundred degree weather. you have to spend money just to subsist and survive this heat. Uh, At some point, uh, after day one, I think it was sometime Friday, they lost the ability to access the porta potties and the, the, basically the sewage. And so, what ended up happening was, and the garbage, they couldn't get rid of the waste. They couldn't clean up the garbage. You know, the sanitation people, they had no access to it. So, they couldn't clean up the garbage. When the porta potties tipped over, they couldn't clean up the shit. Uh, yeah. And so, now you're in, I have no sense of smell, but people were telling me it was the most god awful smell ever smelled like garbage, smelled like shit in a hundred degree weather, all this stuff. God. <laughs> and so now you have all these bands and not only that, but at this point, remember the dominant force in rock and roll now are these new metal assholes that are, you know, misogynistic, homophobic, uh, you know, tweaking creeps. And so, uh, it started to become apparent that these folks were way out of their minds on drugs. There were fights, uh, there was a, just a not friendly vibe and things kind of grew darker through the weekend. We started to hear on Saturday afternoon that there was a lot of groping going on. We were starting to hear about sexual assaults. You, yeah, you had some of the artists or but you had, or not the artists themselves, but you had, uh, guys in the crowd that were famously going on camera, uh, chanting, show your tits. So some women actually did. And some of those women came to regret it because then they got like sexually assaulted, uh, in in some cases, uh, you also had, um, again, there was this sort of disregard for fellow man. And there was a lot of, uh, uh, it was dangerous and you had Fred Durst up there, asshole that, you know, folks were at this point were like ripping off, uh, plywood planks from the, uh, the lighting stations, in the middle of that. And we're using them to crowd surf, which is dangerous as fuck when there's a hundred thousand people or whatever. Uh, and you got Fred Durst up there in the middle of break stuff. That's encouraging people to just absolutely go wild. And as a result, you know, people like broke bones and, you know, ended up in a hospital and all this stuff. And so this is like legitimately now a human rights (laughs) situation up there. Uh, and just, you know, pure, pure corporate greed, kids on drugs in the heat for three days. Being uh, violent
1: and aggressive and yeah, <laughs> misogynistic absolutely. and yeah.
0: Right, exactly. And so here, f- here's the funniest part. So by the end of Sunday, like we're approaching four o'clock, five o'clock, everybody in the president, the president, by the way, was an old airport hangar and a whole bunch of us, there were like rows of tables. And you remember there was no such thing as wireless, so we're all plugged in and and all this stuff and just like, and so my whole week end consisted of uh, going out there on a story assignment, cover a show, do a trend thing, come back, write it up real quick, uh, go back out there. And it was like a mile and a half walk to and fro, by the way. So a shitload Please. of walking, uh, not that much. Well, we, we got access to some free water. Not a whole lot of other people did. Like I said, because of that whole lack of potable water thing, going back and forth, write one story, go back, do another story, go back, go back. I must've lost like seven pounds or something. Wow. Did like 18 stories in four days. Uh, And so by four o'clock, everybody in there has been working their asses off and they've been subjected to all this bullshit and all this crazy stuff going on. Most of us couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there. And so about four o'clock, five o'clock, a a lot of us are just starting to shut down mentally. And uh, the county executive of, Oneida County, the mayor of Rome, New York, the two promoters and a few other guys, they get up there and they hold this press conference. And essentially they blow each other saying how much of a wonderful success this is and oh, how this is going to be a boon for economic development in the community. And it was, it, we pulled it off without a hitch, blah, 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 blah. I mean, we, everybody was rolling their eyes. I actually got away in one of my stories say you know basically uh making a commentary about how they uh about how they lauded uh this su- they lauded the show the fans and each other you know basically they were just up there congratulating each other uh you know in newspaper land that wouldn't have flown but uh, anyway so you have this press conference of them declaring victory 4 hours later the whole field was burning you know and you know like they started building bonfires, the red hot chili peppers uh, in a very cool moment. Otherwise, they caught on to this and immediately launched into a cover of Jimi Hendrix's fire.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. And and so uh, that was I guess that part was cool. The riot wasn't right. You know, when, you, when you have a whole bunch of tweaked out, angry 15 year olds at the end of it, they're just like, fuck it. We don't care anymore. They're setting they're setting fires. They're tearing stuff up. Uh, you know, they're flipping over vehicles. They're doing all kinds of crazy shit. And so now it's just this, this emblematic of everything that has, has gone wrong in society in 1991 and 1992, you had, you know, Kurt Cobain, who was like the biggest rock star in the country. Also one of the biggest feminists in rock, like one of yeah. the biggest fe- m- male feminists. And yeah. you had the rock, the vote things. You had the L7 thing there, you know, uh, what is it, rock for choice, yeah. all that stuff. So women's rights was on the forefront. By 1999, it was uh, it was Fred Durst and a whole bunch of groping, rioting, meth-tweaking assholes that were ruling the roost. Yeah. It was miserable, uh, and I'm not lying when I say it actually was probably a legitimate traumatizing experience, having gone mm-hmm. through that, having been there, been witness to it, and seeing how this mook rock, after all that glorious, wonderful music and all that hope that the fourth golden rage of rock had generated all turned to shit because Michael Lang and Ralphie Annis and you know Joe Griffo, who was the mayor of, because all those guys wanted to make as much money as possible off the Woodstock brand. Yeah. It, just absolutely fucking disgraceful. Yeah. I mean rant rant over.
1: <laughs> my yeah. my my thing is on rap metal and new metal in general. Uh, like I'm a big fan of Rage Against the Machine and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More. And in the early part of the decade, you know th- th- no, those bands were innovative. They were inspiring. They were great. They were original. And uh, basically, bands like Corn and Limp Bizkit and even later Kid Rock and even the Deftones. Who I think suck ass. Hmm. You know, bands like them. They just took. Uh, they took basically what were innovations and great original inspiration, and they just transformed it into something that polluted the airwaves with insipid macho rock. Is what it became.
0: Ugh. Yeah. They mm-hmm.
1: did it all for the nookie. Yeah, However,
0: yeah. yes. They're, next- they're, yes. Yeah. Go ahead. There was one band that didn't do it for the Nookie, right. right?
1: There's one band that didn't do it all for the Nookie, and this band, well, let's talk about them. After sp- we've just spent a fair amount of time trashing new metal and rap metal on this episode and in previous episodes as well, and it's about time we gave praise and credit to what, at least in this curmudgeon's opinion, was the single solitary only good new metal band to emerge from this era. That band is System of a Down. And System of a Down weren't just good. They were spellbindingly awesome and thrillingly original. With their 1998 self-titled debut album, they established themselves as the band that would eventually take the mantle from Rage Against the Machine as thought-provoking, socio-politically charged rock leaders. Musically, they were one of the very few metal bands that actually did something innovative and original with the subgenre by incorporating Eastern European folk music and Armenian cultural identity into their uh, highly inventive turbo fueled math metal. They were formed in Glendale, California in 1994, with each member being born as first generation Americans to Armenian immigrants. They honed their sound over the course of several years and garnered a huge word-of-mouth buzz in the Los Angeles area before Rick Rubin signed them to his American Records, which had a partnership with Columbia Records and probably a, a record distribution as well. Extensive, extensive touring over the next few years meant that the band had to slowly build a national following, and that they did by playing tours opening for the likes of Slayer and Metallica, as well as being on the Ozfest tour. Uh, Playing a game of spot the influence is hard to do with a band as original, as System of a Down, but I'll try. Uh, (laughs) uh, At least in this early era of the band, they occupied a musical zone that combined the complex stop-on-a-dime changes of Rush the searing visceral intensity of Fugazi and the cathartic release of Rage Against the Machine uh, with the intricate chord progressions and exotic folk melodies of traditional Armenian folk music, which is in itself heavily indebted to Middle Eastern tonalities uh, with songs such as Sugar, Sweet Pea, D-Devil and the devastating album finale, P-L-U-C-K, which uh, in the chorus goes, revolution, the only solution, the outrage rage with that one. Uh, You really don't have to go anywhere else to find a new metal band brimming with more soul, power, and innovation than this one. The truly amazing thing is that this album, the self-titled debut, was basically a trial run for what they would amazingly accomplish on their next album. And that is taking the crown as the best metal band in the world. Alas, that album is fodder for another discussion. Chris?
0: Yeah, sugar! Yeah. Uh, Yeah, uh, this is a really, really strong record uh, and strong debut effort. Yeah, calling this band a new metal uh, band, by the way, is an incredibly just insult. I Uh, guess. (laughs) I mean, look, I, I think what happened was is just in terms of the coverage of metal at that time, Yes, there was such a thing as there was a def- definitive new metal, and it's what we just talked about. It's it's a rap influenced, uh, heavy, uh, maybe down tuned, uh, you know, clipped riffs of anger and fury and disgust and uh, m- more of a sort of a, a visceral, personal vibe. Uh, these guys were, you know, had some had a lot to say. That was meaningful. That was interesting. That had a political and uh, uh, sort of uh, not anarchistic, but sort of a, you know this idea of revolution was coming, and they could see the uh, the growing rot uh, in America, and so the idea of using that Armenian polka and folk influence, yeah, and that kind of dancey, kind of you know, kind of shaky. Uh, bouncy rhythms and you know know, (laughs) all, all that kind of stuff and turning that into metal i think was brilliant so anyway let's
1: stay in california we're still in los angeles and now we get to the two bands that kicked off the decade with classic albums and they end it with legacy enhancing albums
0: chris yeah, absolutely. These were the, uh, you know, this was a good year for Los Angeles for sure. And in, in, in many or good era. So this is 99. Now we've gone from 98, which is, uh, the, the system of down record now to 99 and you've got the red hot chili peppers and, uh, rage against the machine, uh, at this point. And they kind of, uh, they hit their peak, but they did it a lot differently. Uh, yeah. there's a divergence in the red hot chili peppers, uh, case, uh, I guess you can kind of subheadline this in which the shirts went back on and we started to hear the red hot chili peppers growing up and coming to terms with addiction, broken relationships and all those right. other demons. Right. Uh, in a lot of cases, I guess you could say it was maybe the biggest surprise in mainstream rock of that year. Just how good Californication was. Yeah, no
1: one uh, expected
0: it. <laughs> yeah, no one expected... Well, they might have expected a good Chili Peppers record. I don't think what they expected was a legitimately really good record. Yeah. It wasn't just a good Peppers record. It was a really good record. And it was a little bit of a comeback, which is a weird thing to say, because I, you know, they did an album in uh, 1995 called One Hot Minute.
1: With Dave yeah. Navarro of Jane's Addiction on guitar. I like yes. that album.
0: Yeah, and so... I guess I'll make this short. You know, I won't use too many words here. Basically, the story of this album and the story of the Chili Peppers in general is John Frusciante's uh, rise, fall, and rise again, fall again, and rise again. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, like you said, so Frusciante obviously he's he was nineteen when he joined the band and was already a guitar prodigy, uh, amazing musician, amazing guitarist. Obviously, his collaboration with Flea was pretty much magical, and then comes Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which is this uh, orgy of, of funk, rock, uh, and some soul, uh, yeah. and just just really amazing interplay between the two, which all basically came from jams while they were smoking weed. Uh, <laughs> so then Frashanti becomes jaded with rock stardom, quits the band, and like plunges headlong into heroin uh, addiction, much worse than singer Anthony Kiedis ever did. Uh, but he straightened himself out and... When the Navarro partnership, one hot minute, pretty good record, but it was like not really a Chili Peppers record. It was like Chili Peppers as filtered through Jane's Addiction. Yeah. Uh, doesn't work out. And then magically, you know, shante reconciles with the band. He comes back in. And so his maturity and uh, his uh, spirit as an artist obviously rubbed off on Ketis and Flea in a majorly good way. And now you get Californication. Uh, which, you know, starts off, you would think, you would think, okay, maybe it starts off like a Chili Peppers record, uh, with, you know, um, with, a, a, around the world, which, you know, has this little, has this little funk rip, uh, riff, and it starts with this rap, but then it just has this really lovely textured chorus yeah. and just remarkably good outro of just, uh, you know, like aggressive, intense, uh, guitar and bass. Which is then followed by Parallel Universe, which is this just amazingly well done uh, collaboration between Frashanti and Flea, where it's not so much a riff, so much as a spiritual backbone yeah. uh, that they formed at this interplay. And it's just this really just uh, athletic, aggressive uh, finesse uh, uh, going on interplay for Ketis to then come up with this really lovely uh, melody. Now, by the time we get to the album's most probably at this point, most well-known some other side, which is uh, the fourth track, you know, something special is going on because Kiedis now is not just, you know, singing and rapping about pussy. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah. You know,
0: he's, he's actually, uh, he's expressing regret. He's about his addictions. He's expressing uh, his desires to grow up and romantic longings and uh, these types of things. And so, now you've got a melodic, mature, focused, serious Red Hot Chili Peppers, and it really, really worked. Uh, really just lovely, really catchy, uh, really diverse uh, record. It has, you know, lovely, lilting, barely audible ballads like porcelain. And then it has a song like Easily, which combines all of the stuff that's great about uh, the Chili Peppers into one song. And then, yeah, it, just in case anybody forgot they were the Chili Peppers, they uh, add in get on top.
1: <laughs> get like on with, top.
0: <laughs> yeah. With, with just wonderful little wah, wah funk riff and, yeah. and uh, rap type of thing. And so uh good record. Uh The only problem is, is that this was definitely their peak because for the 23 years since then, they basically have been trying to recreate the magic of other side and get on top over and over and over and over and over again. And, yeah. And, yeah, and, and, it, it, and not getting anywhere close. Yeah. Uh, uh I, Interestingly enough, Frashanti, actually, after he left the band after 2006's uh, Stadium Arcadium, uh, he just rejoined for a record that they released this year, yeah. which uh, rises. Thank you. Thanks to Frashanti. When Frashanti's in this band, this band is either great or pretty good. They have now risen back to the level of pretty good. Uh, still kind of boring. And these days they kind of do like light jazzy kind of rock Yeah. It's a little weird, but anyway, that's the story of the Chili Peppers in 99, uh, blew us out of, uh, blew us all away in terms of expectations with Californication. Great record.
1: It's a great record. Um, it's their last good album. Uh, frankly, it's, 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 it's their last good album period. Cause I think they've gone down the toilet starting with 2002s, by the way, which I think is atrocious uh and, and stadium arcadium which is like awful except for like a couple of songs yeah and, you mean the,
0: yeah the one song the song that rips off tom petty yeah uh, exactly right which is the best song they've done since this record by the way right. go, go ahead
1: and yeah they, they, they've been on a trajectory of of a non-stop shower of shit but uh but californication is a terrific album and it's really worth like i know most younger listeners out there probably just know the individual songs that were that were hits but the album is definitely Worth listening to. The next album that we're going to talk about is even better.
0: Oh, wait, uh, uh, and yes. in,
1: in my opinion, is the best album by this band, which is saying something because they only have three studio albums of original material, and they're all great.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rage Against the Machines: The Battle of of uh, Los Angeles, uh, fantastic record, much better than Californication. Uh, not a surprise. Uh, I think it was one of the most highly anticipated records of ninety yeah. nine. And yeah. they delivered and, and then some, obviously, you know, we talked in the 1992 episode about their, uh, their debut, which is just this marvelously uh, energetic and furious record uh, that actually professed uh, a desire to have a real tried and true revolution hmm. with the, uh, the burning Vietnamese man uh, right. it's self-immolating that guy's on the cover uh, uh featuring Leonard Peltier, the, uh, the native American, uh, quote unquote, political prisoner in a video. Uh, these guys were not fucking around, but then they just kept getting better. They kind of invented this template of a genuine Orthodox trained, legit rapper, uh, forming yeah. a really good, really solid, uh, metal band. Tom Morello took the hybrid, uh, mission to heart and over the course of the next seven years, uh, refined a style that no one has ever come close to emulating. He He's one of these guys that found new and exciting things to extract out of the electric guitar. Uh, very few guys that have ever been on this level. He figured out a way to turn a guitar into a sampler and a... Uh, and a defa- turntable. <laughs> yeah, and a turntable. De facto sampler, de facto turntable. Uh, you know, de facto scratches and all of that, and so by the time you get to this record, he did a little bit of it on uh, on the on the debut record. By the time you get to this record, I mean he's just like he's just like a showman. You know, he's the DJ, he's the MC as a guitarist, and he's just out there and all these squeaks and squonks and just inspired uh, notes. Uh, you know, and you know the album actually says, you know, every note of this uh, on the liners, you know, every note here is played on guitar. Uh, bass and drums, yeah, which is funny because uh reviewer Neil Strauss and Rolling Stone missed that point and lauded the great like keyboard riff or key or or keyboard solo to gorilla yeah. you know gorilla radio, which yeah. is the first uh which is the first hit so anyway so yeah this is this is definitely uh, uh a focused and uh they're going on the revolution idea they 're now uh more sophisticated musically. Zach Della Rocca is uh, much more laser focused. They also are more self-conscious at this point. They know they have a platform. They've gotten away with murder, essentially, like, you know, like virtual murder, like how the hell they could exist on a major label talking about communist shit. Yeah. You know, Zapatista, you know, like actual like guns and shit revolution. And not only that, but free mumia Abu Jamal, Yeah, uh, you know. And you know, just this kind of you know, you know, calling cops pigs and that kind of stuff. Uh, But they did it in just this brilliant package of of just of riffage of like I said, de facto turntablism, and just De La Raca's intensity and just you know uh, lyrical cleverness and you know mastery of of uh, the art uh, form. And so uh, just, just brilliant.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's also an album that has uh, the, 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 deepest undercurrents of hip hop. Oh yeah. Of any, especially the,
0: the, the, the song Mike check. Oh yeah. Mike check is total.
1: That's straight up hip hop, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. The solo on that is just like, oh my goodness. I mean, that is just brilliant. And uh, I said Morello is one, one of the only guitarists that even guitarists, who hear that probably say, how the fuck is he doing that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, totally, it's, totally. It's amazing. Yeah. Rage Against a Machine, one of the most perfect discographies in rock history. Absolutely. Three, three albums of original material, All fucking brilliant. All worth listening to. Yes. They are one of my 10 personal all-time favorite bands. All right. Guess what, Chris? We are sticking in Los Angeles. We're still in LA. Still in LA. Holy bejesus. Yes. But probably the greatest solo rock artist from Los Angeles of the 1990s. We're talking about none other than Beck Hansen going by the name Beck. Beck. Now, after the smashing critical and commercial success of his 1996 masterpiece, Odile, Beck proved himself to be one of the most important American musical figures of the decade. With the duo of albums he released at the end of the 90s, Mutations and Midnight Vultures, he would prove himself to be the chameleon-like David Bowie of his generation. Let's start with 1998's Mutations. Great it was actor. a bit... Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, totally. It was a bit of an event album at the time of its release uh, for alt rock fans and indie hipsters, and it did not disappoint. But it didn't do. So, but it did. It didn't disappoint in unexpected ways. In most ways, this album was the stripped down, clear sounding, simplified polar opposite of Odile. It's got heavy doses of Beck's wonderful, folky country blues style that he flashed in previous albums such as Mellow Gold and One Foot in the Grave, except this time with sparkling clarity thanks to Radiohead producer Nigel Godrich. Beck's grasp of American roots music has rarely been exhibited in better fashion than on Canceled Check, Bottle of Blues, and the epic folk rock of Cold Brains. However, as it usually is with Beck, it's his stylistic excursions that are his most interesting music. You have the Kinksian English music hall of O Maria. You have the very George Harrison-esque orchestral Indian dirge of nobody's fault but my own. And then you have, in my opinion, the highlight of the album, his exquisite take on the psychedelicized Brazilian samba of Caetano Veloso's 1960s Tropicalia era, the infectious, well, Tropicalia, (laughs) which swings in a way Beck had never swung before until it ends in a typically Beck-esque style of cacophonous dissonance. Chris, you're a big fan of Mutations as well.
0: Oh, huge fan of Mutations. I love this record. Uh, It's one of the more aptly named records of the era. This album is definitely full of Mutations uh, in terms of... It's Beck, uh, and dabbling in styles that he had yet to, uh, to, uh, at least portray out there, uh, publicly, but these are, the songs are just there. There's no gimmickry. You yeah. know, it's not you know, like, even like Odile, uh, even though the songs are great, there's a, per, there's a reason he chose the Dust Brothers. I mean, he was, he was going for that kind of kaleidoscopic kind of carnival yeah. of, 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 weirdness and tongue in cheekness or whatever. Yeah. You want to say here, it's just, uh, it, there's a focus on the songs and the sounds and the sort of the, the moods, and there is a sweep that, like you said, you know, Tropicalia, uh, bottle of blues, which is my personal favorite song on a record. Uh, just, uh, just a, lo- just a romp, but it's just so fun and just kind of a, it's upbeat and lovely and just, just really, really well done. I think I didn't get a chance to double check this, but I think his father had involvement on this record. I think he yes. did the strings on nobody's fault, but my own.
1: Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And and then he would do the strings on the entire sea change album in O2, but yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. I yeah. got you. Yeah. So. so no, it's just, and working with Nig- Nigel Godrich, uh, Godrich, uh, yeah, had to be one of the best producers of his era. I mean, he has the two Radiohead albums, but then he takes the same kind of engineering brilliance and cleanness and gives it the Beck, And so, yeah. like, you know, hey, you know, it was like a wonderful match.
1: Right. Anyway, no rest for the weary, as nope. in the next year, Beck would veer in another extreme direction with 1999's Midnight Vultures. Um, on this underrated gem in Beck's catalog, I think it's one of his most underrated albums, he takes the funk, dance, and EDM elements of Odelay and blows them up to gigantic, arena-sized, neon-lit proportions. Lots of artists throughout the years have tried to make a quote-unquote Prince-style record, but very few, if any, have come as close to capturing the stylistic adventurism, the subtle wit, and, dare I say, the overall musical virtuosity uh, of Prince, as Beck did on Midnight Vultures. Mixed business is a hilarious, funky dance floor killer that should have been a monster hit and would have been in our parallel universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Get Real Paid is retro 80s electro funk of the highest order before it became cliche in the 21st century. Sex Laws updates the 1960s, Stacks, Volt Records, Otis Redding sound for the 1990s with an edge and immediacy that only Beck could have managed. Chris?
0: Yeah. Back when this album was released, yeah, there definitely was a lot of this, you know, hey, Beck actually pulls off the Prince album uh, better than all the faux princes ever before that that came forth, that he had that sort of, uh, he was able to kind of capture that kind of Prince uh, musical persona as well as anybody ever had.
1: On this episode... Chris and I put a nice ribbon and bow on the fourth golden age of rock in the form of an epilogue to an unforgettable era. For the next episode, the Curmudgeon Rock Report will travel further back in time to an even more bygone era by examining the discography and legacy of a particular band that has polarized both fans and critics for the past 20 to 25 years. That band... ...is The Eagles. Baby Boomers love them. Gen Xers are generally indifferent. Millennials and Gen Zers can't stand them. But despite Don Henley's and the late Glenn Frey's... ...respective pretentiousness and arrogance... ...does their music really deserve so much vitriol... ...from the under 40 years old crowd? Yours truly, curmudgeons, will put on their forensic lenses... ...and dive deeply into the discography of this most seminal of American bands to make the case that their music really does need to be appreciated in a vacuum and without the pop-cultural baggage and indie hipster posturing from their detractors that has accumulated throughout the years. Tune in next time for In Defense of the Eagles. Chris, we're going to get a little more laid back. Are you ready for the country?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly am uh, ready for the country. Always have been ready for the country. So, uh, so one of the things here we are at the uh, edge. You know, this is the epilogue to the fourth golden age of rock. We talked about it in a couple of instances in the you know in the actual frame of of the fourth golden age, the presence of country. Uh, influences and in what became known as alt country, uh, you know, most typified by Uncle Tupelo. But then by the mid 90s, uh, you know, Jeff Tweedy had moved on to start Wilco, and then they broke out into uh, popular consciousness uh, starting in, well, it, with being there in 1996, was really the breakout. You had other artists like the Jayhawks, who I loved, mm-hmm. uh, and these other artists that had their moment in the sun and kind of brought alt country out there. And so here, was the, here were two effects of that alt-country breakout of the mid-'90s, most especially because of Wilco's being there. Uh, two main effects. Uh, one, it prompted record labels to go searching for young, up-and-coming artists who could do more of that. Yeah. And two, it cleared a path for country-ish rock veterans who'd been making great music in the shadows for years to right. finally get the, the attention and distribution they deserved. Now, it's the latter that I'll really uh, be focusing on. And so, because, you know, here we are in the epilogue, you know, where do we go from here? Well, one of the things that happens is that uh, Lucinda Williams and Will Oldham. So let's start with Lucinda Williams, uh, the brilliant uh, Lucinda Williams. Uh, there's a lot of young female uh, Americana type artists these days. That pretty much owe everything they have to Lucinda Williams and no and, shit <laughs> and and this uh, this album Car Wheels uh, on on a Gravel Road and and well a uh,
1: Waxahachie uh, the group Wax yes. they've actually admitted it like Lucinda Williams is like a touchstone influence
0: of course and you know eventually I think if you ask Brandi Carlisle and Angel Olsen and a few of those other uh, younger women yeah. you know in their thirties and and uh, early forties they would say it yeah nope we you know Lucinda Lucinda is the the guidepost. Yeah, here's the thing about Lucinda Williams I always said uh, she bridged a gap between Emmylou Harris and Townes Van Zandt mm. that we didn't realize existed. I yeah. mean, this was kind of her brilliance that she could have that sort of that, you know, sort of passion and desire and just sort of depth of feeling that uh, Townes had in his uh, in his songwriting and match it with just that sort of that loveliness and that femininity. Right. That, the, that Emily Lewis Harris uh, could bring when she was translating the songs that she mostly covered. Uh, right. So she had that. And so here we come to with Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. But when she made this record, uh, she was 45 years old. She had been uh, recording albums and releasing stuff and been out there, you know, busting her butt for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so here we get there. I don't think it's an accident when we talk about Car Wheels on a Gravel Road that Roy Bitten produce this record. Mm. Roy Bitten being otherwise known as the keyboard guy from the E Street band. Uh and you know, basically uh when you hear uh when you hear uh Born in the USA, that's yeah. uh that's Bitten's uh or that's 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 his organ part. That's his keyboard wow. part. Uh wow. and so, you know, so Bitten, you know, again, you know, so you can't discount the influence of the boss either. You know, lyrically, structurally, attitudinal—you know—the desire to capture the American experience. You know, the title track of Car Wheels uh, definitely evokes the East Street Band most especially. Now, Williams, in doing some research for this record or for this uh, episode of this year' podcast, uh, I'd forgotten some of this. You know, I I followed Lucinda pretty intensely for a while uh, during my Sonic Net phase there uh, in '99, especially. Uh, She has like the most Americana as fuck journey imaginable. (laughs) Born in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Yeah. Stops in Fayetteville, Arkansas and Baton Rouge. Right. Starts her career in earnest in Austin, Texas. Moves to Jackson, Mississippi to record her first album. Uh, That's where her label was. And it was, you know, sort of, you know, obviously very bluesy, folksy, you know, roots there. She right. ends up going to Los Angeles for a bit to get more discovered and to kind of burgeon her career. And she finally settles in Nashville, Tennessee, hmm. man, she hit just about every guidepost that you could hit on that. You know, I don't with, know. With,
1: without breaking through.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. With, with, yeah, with, without breaking through the only place I think she, the only places she really didn't hit were like what, like Tucson and like Kansas yeah. city. Uh, yeah. She had hit those things that she'd have like, you know, she, she'd be ultimate. So, all those travels and everything—maybe that explains why the songwriting and thematic strands of Car Wheels are so yeah. strong. She right. she sounds like a grizzled and a wizened woman who's been just down just about all roads you can go down. Again, she right. was forty five at the time, and she sounds very much like a forty five year old craftswoman and mentor to young ladies everywhere. Uh, just. Again, I use the term depth of feeling. I think this album epitomizes it. Uh, one of the best albums of the 90s, I think. Certainly, uh, to me, looking back on 1998, probably the best record of 1998. Uh,
1: well, Either that or Neutral Milk Hotel. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, those, those are the two. Personally, I would put Lucinda's album over, over that one,
1: mm.
0: uh, over the Neutral Milk Hotel record. So uh, I mean, the album starts with one of my favorite lyrics of all time. From the mm. song "Right in Time," uh, oh, yeah. not a day goes by I don't think about you. You left your mark on me. It's a it's permanent, a tattoo. Mm. Uh, wow! So basically, it's a perfect album, no drop off, and it gives you the feeling that every song is better than the previous one. Maybe that's not the case, but it's a cool trick by an artist who could grab you by the balls, and uh, it could absorb you with every successive note. Uh, the confidence on display here is just stunning. Uh, my two personal favorite songs are Too Cool to Be Forgotten and uh, Drunken Angel. Mm. Uh, the former is a really sensuous, wistful, uh, and absolutely absorbing ballad uh, with wonderful uh, uh, wonderful singing. And then the latter is just as melodic, but more raucous and angrier. So uh, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road is just one of those albums that just sounds like it belongs to you. Uh, and just you, uh, seek it out and make it yours too. Uh, Arturo thoughts.
1: Yeah. Uh, this album, um, okay. From 1988 to 2007, that's a 20 year span. And that 20 year span, Lucinda Williams put out six albums. Mm -hmm. Okay. A testament, a testament to the notion of quality control, <laughs> yes, and, and not being overly prolific, and sure. all six and all six of these albums are amazing. She had a twenty-year span of incredible records. This is just one of those five-star albums. She has other ones, uh, West from two thousand seven, one of my personal favorites, and yeah, uh, Sweet Old World, Sweet Old World from nineteen ninety
0: two, is another one. Right. Okay, so and, then,
1: and, and the next one was the best album by this guy.
0: Yeah, by far the best album by this guy. Uh, and so we're going to talk about uh, Bonnie Prince Billy's "I See a Darkness" uh, yeah. next. Uh, B- Bonnie Prince Billy has been the nom de plume of uh, Will Oldham uh, since this record that came out in '99. Uh, Johnny Cash covered the title track, uh, the yeah. lovely "I See a Darkness." That's always a pretty strong and telling endorsement. Yeah, uh, just it's a gorgeous song, and it is a monument to heartache. Uh, there is just this remarkable juxtaposition of hope and dread as it travels from verse to chorus, and then from second verse uh, to uh, second chorus. Uh, Will Oldham, uh, Bonnie P- Prince Billy's creator, has been had at that point been grinding for years, uh, mostly under the labels of Palace and Palace Music but it was with I See a Darkness and the album named after it where Oldham in his first turn as Mr. Billy uh, truly arrived as a quiet force of nature and also as one of the indie music world's most inert bum trips. Man, this is often a really ridiculously bleak record. Uh, Quote, death to everyone is going to come and it makes hosing much more fun. (laughs) End quote. Uh, Even the songs that profess joy are rendered pretty sardonically. Gee, dude, go out and enjoy the sunlight once in a while, you know. Uh, More seriously, though, there is a battle of good and evil here framed by Oldham, done with an edge that uh, was really original and really striking at the time. Uh, Is it better to give life a shot or is it... or do you just go ahead and give in to life's awful impulses, which in the Billy character voice includes sexual gratification from the fire and the earth? Uh, seriously, check out the song "Not Turn." Uh, in the years since he released I See a Darkness, Oldham slash Mr. Billy has become the best chronicler and guardian of the sounds and vibes of Appalachia within the context of modern popular music. There's a whole lot of isolation and longing and vagabond love and anger in them there mountains. And through his alter ego here, Oldham filters those emotions and accompanying ruralish arrangements in a wholly unique voice. Uh, Generally, it's a quieter, albeit still bitter voice. Yet with I See a Darkness, we find Oldham allowing himself to rock out to a certain degree, uh, which gives this album a pretty visceral wallop, I would say. Which is why I personally like it so much, but it's a wallop that Oldham really has yet to deliver in subsequent recordings. Which is why yeah. I'm otherwise lukewarm on the guy. Like, essentially, w- unless he's like uh, working with collaborators and in other uh, context, he's gotten pretty boring. Yes, <laughs> as, he is as, boring. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I, I I can take Will Oldham in small doses. This is the only Bonnie Prince Billy album as a whole that I can actually sit through and go oh, okay, and it's it's a powerful, moving record. Now we will end this episode with a look to the next decade. Garage rock never tasted so good, Chris. Yum 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 as, yum, yum yum. As we reach the end of this postscript slash epilogue episode that marks the very end of rock music's very last golden era, it's only fitting that we end it with one eye into the future and discuss the band that would go on to arguably become the defining American band of the next decade. Of course, I'm talking about the bluesy garage rock duo from Detroit, The White Stripes, and their self-titled debut album from 1999. Of course except for people in the in the Detroit music scene and some serious hardcore underground garage rock aficionados. No one knew of the White Stripes at this time. <laughs> nope. Hell, personally, neither of yours truly, Curmudgeons, found out about them until a couple of years later. But for any serious rock music fan discovering this band, whether it be in 1999 at a dingy bar or club or over the speakers at some Greenwich Village hipster record store in <laughs> 2001, All right. the experience of hearing Jack and Meg White for the first time was akin to having your rock and roll soul turned upside down, washing away the stink of both ultra-stupid new metal and whiny-ass wuss rock of the likes of the Flaming Lips or Mercury Rev. Take the heavy as fuck Grandiose blues rock of Led Zeppelin. Shrink it for maximum impact so it fits inside a 10 foot by 10 foot garage. Inject it with plenty of the DIY spirit and attitude of the best punk rock. Break it down to the most basic instrumental arrangement of one drum kit and one guitar and crank the amps up to a spinal tapish 11. And oh, yeah. maybe, just maybe, you'll get a taste of how revelatory the White Stripes were. It's almost as if God was a true rock and roll believer and decided to end the fourth golden age of rock exactly as it started by showering the revolutionary spirit of Kurt Cobain, one of the most unlikely success stories in rock history, over this most unlikely of bands in a no-nonsense blue-collar city, Detroit, known for giving the world some of the most rabble-rousing, inspiring rock bands ever in the MC5 and the Stooges. You can draw a direct line of descendants from those classic bands to Jack White, who improved on the bluesy garage rock of the John Spencer Blues Explosion by employing not just real guitar chops, but exceptional songwriting skills. Their self-titled debut is the dirty, slimy, gritty gift that just keeps on giving after repeated listens. Jimmy the Exploder, well, explodes out of the speakers <laughs> with a menace that borders on heavy metal. The band proves that a bass guitar isn't needed for a groove as Jack and Meg lock in an exemplary fashion on an exemplary cover of Robert Johnson's Stop Breaking Down. Jack White's vitriolic anger at how Detroit's automotive industry outsourced all its factory jobs, finds a home with the maniacally intense The Big Three Killed My Baby. The cathartic power of When I Hear My Name is an original song, but Jack sings it with the desperation of the most convincing bluesmen of the early 20th century. The stop-start dynamic of Screwdriver and its Jimmy Page-esque riff only adds to the drama of one of the most intense wind-up, rave-up songs in the White Stripes' soon-to-be colossal discography. I cannot say enough about the first four White Stripes albums. I'm already getting hot under the collar. Chris, what do you think?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, just uh, (laughs) – I'll make a correction – that something you said they were the definitive rock band of the first decade yeah. of, of the twenty first century. Yeah. Uh because there was there was this embrace of and I guess maybe it was because of the rise of of sort of the the sheen and you know the the Pro Tools kind of yeah. c- clean pop on right. the radio that right. there was this uh movement on the other end of this, you know, let's make it as dirty and as, uh, as low-fi and as crunchy and as minimalist as possible. Yeah. White stripes formula, take Jimmy page and John Bonham from Led Zeppelin to only get rid <laughs> of, get rid of John Paul Jones and just take those and do it even louder. Bang, <laughs> stomp, bang, stomp, and make sure to cover Robert Johnson and, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and other folks. Um, this album, especially, is is kind of uh, a, a real statement uh, you know, in terms of you know there yes, there's that bang and crunch. I mean, the funniest song of the album is "The Big Three Killed My Baby," only yeah. because they're playing so loud and just so out of control that you can't even hear White sing. You know <laughs> that like he just gets drowned out by his own yeah. guitar. That's yeah. hilarious. But there also is one of my favorite Dylan covers on here One More Cup Mm. of Coffee which proved that uh, even you can find a little bit of Zeppelin in everything
2: yeah (laughs)
0: including a Bob Dylan song that Jack White (laughs) finds the Zeppelin in Bob Dylan's One More Cup of Coffee it's 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 a pretty uh, neat feat and so Everything. This record is just a preview of all the stuff to come. I mean, obviously, White grew as a songwriter. Uh, He also uh, started to pull off the neat trick, starting with White Blood Cells, of using uh, digital digital effects for his guitar while recording through analog equipment. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And so again, so, you know, White is just true. uh, He's just truly brilliant. And I just want to make a point here to end uh, the episode. I guess, you know, the White Stripes, they're a little bit more celebrated than this, but what started to happen in the late nineties. And I think that even folks catching onto the white stripes early enough, like the record, what you started to see was that because rock and roll was starting to peter out because of uh, the sort of the, uh, the uh, lo- loss of momentum of grunge, the, right. uh, the presence of phony grunge, that it, yeah. you know, like Creed and Days of the New and all of that stuff.
2: Oh, eyes wide yes. open.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you know the you know, obviously the uh, the rise of of corporate rock and you know the sort of all this stuff. And so uh, you know, so you started to lose this high profile communal experienceness or yeah. uh, element of rock. And so by 1998 and 1999, the tastemaking had now started to shift from the labels and MTV and the big outlets to more parochial sources. And so, like, you know, sort of hip hip dudes that lived in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn, New York, yeah. uh, all of a sudden were the gatekeepers rather than guys we mentioned before, Clive Davis and Herb Albert. And so, like, you know, uh, like critics like Robert Chris Gow, and, or like, uh, uh, even like better examples, like some of the editors of the alt weeklies of, you know, the, the guys that worked at the voice, like Joe Levy you know, and, mm-hmm. and guys like that, all of a sudden these guys were becoming the gatekeepers to what we all considered was great rock. Yeah. And so, you know, the stripes, you know, are a little bit of a different case because they broke out more, uh, traditionally, but you got to remember in 1999, the two most celebrated rock records of that year were uh, the magnetic field, 69 love songs and uh, the flaming Lips, the soft bulletin, which outside of the intelligentsia out there in middle America, nobody gave a shit. You're right. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of the thing. And so it started to become more parochial. It started to become sort of a more personal uh, thing as filtered subjectively through the people who were discovering the music. Um the white stripes were a happy accident I think they started out that way yeah and you know like the uh the, this album and then uh, de style which I think is still just brilliant I think it was de style that put them on the map mm. and it was because of these critic boys yeah. uh, that got them there and so yep so here we are now twenty years later and we're we're ultra super duper parochial now as in <laughs> It could just be me putting something up on SoundCloud, and it's just <laughs> like you know, and then like four four bloggers, or like some dude with a YouTube channel. Here's that. Put it on his YouTube channel, and away you go. But man, it's um, yeah. And I'm just reflecting on that, ruminating on it, and that's really how you know we you know we went from you know the stadiums to the living rooms in the span of ten years. Um, pretty we amazing, sure did. Well, yep. that what a da- is
1: what a depressing da- way to end it.
0: Yeah, but that was kind of, dude, you stuck me with all the, you stuck me with all the death and disillusion you know, and, and destruction, you know, you, you got to mostly talk about cool records. I got to talk about how like fucking, uh, you know, like people burned up concert venues and destroyed radio and, you know, like, like like fucking uh you know blew the chance to save the record industry man man i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to go drink some beer after this episode (laughs) man so i'm probably gonna drink some soju afterward as well well folks we hope you've enjoyed our run through the fourth golden age of rock and you heard right earlier we will be defending the eagles next episode and telling you yes that band is not indefensible and is actually great yes great hit us up in the meantime at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com.